Well, good morning. So I got a message from Sam. Yeah. Uh, he's watching us online. I heard that we also have somebody watching from Biloxi, Mississippi, which is pretty cool. Like, we are branching out. Technology is a pretty cool thing. But Sam sent me a message and said, hey, we're watching online. And, uh, or actually, he did not say we're watching online. He sent me a message and said, tell everybody I say hello. So Sam says hi. Hello, everybody from Sam. But we have other people who are watching, people who are staying at home because of the virus that is going on. And um, so I thought it would be really cool if on the count of three, we could just say hello. Sound good? All right, you're ready? Let's see how this goes. Do we need to do a practice run real quick? All right, ready? One, two, three, hello. Hey, man, you guys are good. Like that, actually, I was thinking we'd have a little stray, like, hello, 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 echoes and stuff like that. But no, this is one of the blessings of technology that we have is that we're able to, even when we can't gather in person, um, we're still able to have people. So I want to say hello to everybody watching, especially uh, Kim Likert's sister, who is the one that is watching in Biloxi, uh, Mississippi, because Kim told me, I got to tell you, as cool as technology is, Kim brought this upon herself. Um, But I received a message this morning, really nice message. It said, hey, you know what? I'm praying for you this morning. And then it said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I thought, boy, that makes your day start off great. Like receiving a message like that first thing in the morning, like let's go. And then Satan was going to be using somebody else to attack me because then like 10 minutes later, I get another message from said Kim Likert and it's just a picture of leaves. And I'm like, okay, why is she sending me a picture of leaves? Until you look closely and there's a snake involved. And Kim knows my disgruntledness or my dislike for snakes and she still sent it. So I thought, man, like I start out great message received and then she sends me a snake. And it attacks me. And it's just, I was waiting for it to be a video where it's just going to jump out and I'm going to like throw my phone. And so it it didn't happen. It was just a picture. But Kim, hi. But technology is a good thing. I mean, it it can be a good thing. It's allowing us to talk to people who aren't with us right now. Um, It's even working its way into our cars. Like cars now can almost drive on their own thanks to technology. I think we actually have cars that I think one car successfully drove all the way across the United States without somebody maining it. It just automatically GPS and everything, which scares me a little bit. I remember when I was growing up, like... 10 years old, we had a mile from a stoplight to our house, and mom and dad sometimes would let us slide over into the center console, and we could hold the steering wheel while driving down that road. And I remember doing that and thinking, I have arrived. I'm pretty much an adult because I can drive this straight mile section. And mom and dad were always there whenever we'd, you know, like, oh, a squirrel. They'd turn us back onto the road, and, you know, we're still alive to this day, not because of Rex, so that's a good thing. And then I remember like we'd start out, I, I was really young, so they'd let me hold the steering wheel. And then they'd also let me man the gas pedal every now and then. And then it would get to the point where we would even swap seats entirely. And I could sh- jump over in the driver's seat. And then I turned 14, got my own driver's license, turned 16, had multiple tickets, multiple incidents, because I thought I can do this on my own. I don't need mom and dad to help me anymore. I'm an adult. I can handle everything. I'm a good driver. And my track record would show the opposite. But actually, when Heather and I were going to our vacation, uh, a car would pass me and I'd be like, well, they're going faster. Let's just speed up a little bit. And then she reminded me, if we get another ticket, our insurance is going to go really high. And she was like, we don't need a ticket. And it's like, okay, we'll slow back down. But anyways, I remember just, you know, always kind of like gradually shifting over, driving a little bit more. And then I got to thinking, hey, I can handle this. I can drive on my own. And I see a totally a relation between that and the Christian walk today. Where it's like you give your life over to Christ and it's like, God, I need you. Like Jesus, I need you in this moment because my life was heading. I know if I were on the path that I would have kept going, death was certainly there for me. 
Like, not just like my life is going to die, but like I talked about last week, there is not only a physical death, there's a spiritual death waiting for me. I'm killing myself because of what I'm allowing to control me. So I'm killing relationships. I'm killing my own life. I'm bringing death into it. So God, I need you to take over the reins of my life. And then he does. And it's like, God, awesome. Let me have the driver's seat again. Let me drive. I got this. You just, I'll call on you when I need your help. We get in those habits where we, we hit the high points of our life where it's like, I can handle this. I'm an adult. I know what I'm doing, God. So just go ahead and sit in the back seat and I'll call you up front when things really get out of control. Kind of like Carrie Underwood's song, Jesus, take the wheel because I'm spinning out of control. But then when it gets back on the path, it's like, sweet, hop back, God, I'm going to handle this. And we've seen the promise of God that he's always going to be there with us. He's always going to guide us and he's always going to, he's never going to leave us. He makes that promise. But so often do we trust God at his promise? Kind of like what Todd was saying. We fight God for control all the time. Every time we say, God, I know your word says this, but I'm doing this. God, I know your word says to be faithful, but man, the desires are pushing me this way. God, I know your word says to be controlled by nothing but the Holy Spirit, but actually, really, I'm having all these other desires that I'm going to let control me and guide me, or I'm going to let these substances, or I'm going to let these relationships, or these um, inputs from other people control me, and God, I really don't know that I trust you here. We constantly are fighting God for control. But he's made us a promise. He has told us, I will be there for you. I know what's right for you. My word has the words of eternal life. Peter said this to Jesus when Jesus said, are you going to leave us too? And Peter's like, Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We've tasted and seen that you are the Holy One. And so God has made known to us the way that we should live. He said, let me guide you. Let me lead you. But so often our life and our personalities and our sin nature says, no, I'm going to call the shots, God. I'm going to take you off your throne because you're a God that I can move around and manipulate and form how I want. And I'm going to sit on the throne of my life. And that's not how it should be. Because God has promised that if we live according to his word, life will work out. I don't know how it's crazy that I can disagree with God's word in so many areas, but I apply them to my life and he's right every time. It's like when I live in accordance to God's word, there's joy, there's happiness, there's love, there's blessing. When I live according to my life, there's regret, there's heartache, there's stress, there's anger, there's resentment. God tells us in Psalm 119, verse 1 through 4, he says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him in their whole heart, who do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts be kept diligently. So God has said, if you will do what I tell you to do, you will be blessed. Your life will result from it. You will have blessings and joy and peace and comfort and courage and boldness. So many blessings if you will live according to God's word. But so many times we say, it's not good enough, God. I want the worldly blessings. I want the fame, the fortune. I want the, the life that the world has to promise, which is never going to measure up. Every time trouble comes into our life, it is because we have decided to walk away from God. Every time trouble enters our life, it is the result of sin. Sometimes I will say it is somebody else's sin. But every time it is because of walking away from what God's word says. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the very first time that this snowball effect happened where man, where Satan came into the garden, told Eve, eat of the fruit, and Eve believed him, and Adam was right there. 
not stepping up, but saying, go for it. Yeah, let me have some too. And then we have this snowball effect of people continually going against God. And we're going to see that this is true even in the Bible times, even in the lives of these so-called Bible heroes. There's only one hero of the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ. Every other person is a person that God worked through. But we're still going to see that in Abram's life, the father of our faith, we could get up and be singing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, you know. But uh, I wrecked my bike yesterday, and I can't shake my elbow very hard. So, but, you know, like he's the father of our faith. And so we're not going to, we're going to see that even though the father of our faith is the father of our faith, he still struggled with this. He tried taking control of his own life. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 again. We were in the first half last week. We're going to start there and we're going to work our way through 13. We're not really going to read it because it's so long, but if you will open up to it so that you can have quick reference to what I'm talking about this morning and that you can see what's going on in between. But we saw last week in chapter 12, verse one through three, that God called Abram. God called him into a land that God was going to show him. It said, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we're going to see here, God is promising Abraham saying, go, but notice the key word repeated in those verses. I will do this being God will do it. Abram, just follow me, give your life over to me, be faithful to me and watch what I will do. God's making that same promise to you today. Give your life over to him and watch what he will do. Joel Osteen wrote a book, The Power of I Am. Not I am Exodus chapter four, where God says, I am who I am, but instead the power of I am Andy Peterman. I'm great, I'm strong, I'm amazing. I'm, I'm, yeah, I can't go much further, it hurts. But it's like, that's what Joel Osteen is saying. Whereas God is saying, no, it's not how great you are. It's how great I am, how great the great I am is. And so we're going to see how Abram, though, even though God just promised him this, saying, go, be faithful to me and see what I will do, Abraham doesn't fully trust God. He doesn't fully follow God. Instead, he takes things into his own hands. So before we go any further, if you'll just join me in a quick word of prayer. Father God, speak to us here and now. As we dive into your word even more, God, May it be your word that is spoken. Open our hearts to receive what you have to say. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. And so Abram just received this promise from God. And we hear in, you know, 2,000 years later, well, a lot longer later from Abram, but you know, we have the written word in our hands. We can read that and be like, Abram, it's so easy to follow God. He verbally said to you, go. Like if I had God verbally tell me to go somewhere, I would go. That's how we can get. And it's like, really, Andy? God has verbally told me so many things in his word that I'm like, hold up, God. How about no? Can we play that game where like I get to be the one in charge and we can't? God is God. And so God just told Abram, go, I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to give you a great nation. You're going to be the institution of blessing and cursing. And through you, all the people of the world will be blessed. And we see that comes to fruition in Jesus. And then in verse seven of Genesis chapter 12, God again repeats this to Abram as he arrives. He does what God told him. He comes to the promised land and God says to him, the Lord appeared and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so it's like God was, or Abram was faithful. He went and God is like, see Abram, I am a God. of my promise. I'm going to give you, look out. I'm going to give you all of this. 
God is faithful every time to his word. Psalm chapter 105, verse 7 through 11. It tells us this. It says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. He will not forget it. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel an everlasting covenant. He said, to you, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion for your inheritance. God kept that promise. The promises that God makes in his word, he will keep. If we can trust him at that. And so Abram, is faithful to God. And he continues on his journey. He, he gets into the promised land. God makes the promise in verse seven. Abraham kind of continues into the promised land to get settled. And then we come to chapter 10 of uh, Genesis chapter 12, where Abram starts to take things into his own control. He starts saying, God, I don't trust that you're gonna really provide for me here. Verse 10 of chapter 12, it said, There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so here we just see this, that God promised Abraham this land. He said, Abram, go to this land. Abram went. Abram arrived at the land. God said, look at this land. I'm going to give it all to you. What happens? The first sign of trouble, a famine comes. What does Abram do? God, we need provision. We trust you provide for us. No. Instead, a famine comes and he's like, who can help me? There's Egypt over there. Let's go. Let's get provision from them. God just promised, this is your land, Abram. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to provide for you. And the first sign of trouble, Abram's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going over there to these people who I know can help me. Not you, God. I know you promised. I don't trust you. I'm going over there. What do we do at the first sign of trouble? God, I trust you. Oh man, I can't handle this. Who can help me? And it's like, I should be going to God, but God, I don't really trust you. So I'm going to go to my own worry. I'm going to go to my finances. I'm going to go to uh, these people. I'm not going to you, God, because I really, I mean, I believe you can save me from hell, but I don't know if you can save me from this trouble that I'm in right now. I don't trust you that much. And so Abram didn't trust him. And then Abram gets into Egypt. And he has this beautiful wife and he's looking at her and he's like, man, all these Egyptians are going to see you and they're going to like you. And if they find out that you're married to me, they're going to kill me. So you're my sister. And then I'll get to live. I don't know what will happen to you, but I'll get to live because they might kill me. What else did God promise Abram? Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. So Abram should have been in there like, this is my wife. Y'all can't touch me because I got God on my side. But instead, he's like, this is my wife and she's really pretty and they might kill me and I don't trust that God will provide for me. You're my sister. It's like him, again, going in his own matters. He's like, hey, I'm going to control this. I don't trust you, God. Again, how many times do we do this? It's not that far to look before we see our lives could easily be transplanted into this story. That it's like, God, I'm following you. And something happens. And I start questioning everything, God. I start worrying about everything. And so God just promised this to Abram. And Abram was like, I can't handle this. And I know, even as I was reading it, my thought was like, yeah, but God, it's a famine. Like, it's not even like there's a little difficulty. This is like, where's your next meal coming from, man? It's a famine. So of course he's going to go somewhere. We can try and justify Abram's response because I want to justify my own responses. And so it's like a famine hit. Man, of course he would go, which is downplaying the power that God has. So when you're supposed to be, or when you're thinking, well, what was he supposed to do? The answer is trust God. And continue to live according to what he said. That's the answer. 
I mean, just this is after Abram's time, but we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 through 21, that God will finish and equip you for what he's calling you to do. It says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with every good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's like, God, I know you're telling me to do this, but I don't feel equipped. Hebrews says, God will equip you. So don't say, God, there's this famine of my spirituality and I don't know if I can handle it because God will provide. You have to trust God. Even when you don't know how it's gonna work out, even when you don't see it being for your good, God will work it out. Because Paul writes in Philippians 1, 6, he says, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God's not gonna be like, I'm done. Like, I'm just done. I don't know what else to do. God's not gonna do that. But instead, God is gonna be like, I started this in you. I'm gonna keep working in you and I will finish it in you. I will continue to work in you if you will continue to trust me. Isaiah 58, 11 The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Makes me think of a famine when I read that scorched places, a place where there is no food. But God will satisfy your desire even in scorched places and he will make your bones strong and you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And so 650 years from Abram leaving because of a famine, His descendants are now leaving slavery from Egypt, where again, they went. And now they're out here in the wilderness and they're not, I mean, they're having to scavenge for their own food. They're in the wilderness. It's like no food. And they constantly are grumbling to God. God, if you would have just left us in Egypt where we ate fine meals and we stayed in the Ritz-Carlton's and we had the nicest places to live and it's like, really, Egypt? Or not Egypt, Israel. Do you not realize how dumb you are? Like, that was a horrible lifestyle you were living in. And they're like, God, why did you bring us out here to die with no food? And so what did God do? God provided for them. He sent uh, bread from the dew of the ground. When the dew dried, there was this little fine flake of bread and it's called manna because it's like, we don't know what this is, but man, it's good. It, It satisfies us. And then they're like, all right, God, there's no food here or no water here. What are we gonna do? And so God says, Moses, take your staff up to the rock and hit it and water's gonna flow out. And it happens. And God provides for them in the wilderness. I want to read Psalm 105, verse 14, and then we're going to jump to verse 26. And I want you to notice the multiple repetitions of what God will do. Because it's going to recap almost a lot of the Old Testament, and it's going to constantly say what God will do. It says in verse 14 of Psalm 105, He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. And then when you jump down to verse 26, it says, He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood, this is Egypt, and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He sent uh, locusts. I skipped the line. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. 
They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. And so we see everything. How many times did they do something? Never. It was all what God did. He called them. He freed them. He sent them. He fed them. He did everything. And so God promised it to Abram. And God will be faithful to his promise. But Abram took matters into his own hands. Even in Egypt... Abram did not trust God. He said, God, they're going to kill me. I need to lie about who Sarah is. And a lot of people want to be like, was it really a lie? It was deception, which is a sin. He took matters into his own hands instead of trusting God. And there are consequences even for this trip to Egypt because he ended up going to Egypt. And then later on, we're going to end up seeing that Sarah got a handmaiden from Egypt named Hagar, who ends up being the source of a lot of strife in Abram's life. So we see Abram took matters into his own hands, but it doesn't stop there. Because it shouldn't stop there with us. We shouldn't be like, God, I can handle this. I'm going to do this. And then when when we realize, oh my goodness, I failed, we don't stay in that moment. Because then you skip over to Genesis chapter 13 and we see what Abram did. It said, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, notice this, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Do you see what Abram did there? He fell short. He did not trust God. And then he returned. He went back to where he started. He went back to where God promised him. He went back to the altar that he made to God. In Christianese, Christian lingo, we say he repented. He turned around. Repent means I'm going this way and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back this way. I'm going towards the way that my body, my life, my desires tell me. And then it's like, wait a minute. God's calling me to something higher. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go towards God. Abram did that. He was going away from God. He was going towards his, where he thought he could get shelter. He was going towards saving his own life. And then it's like, oh yeah, God promised me something. So I'm going to turn and return to God, to the place that God called me in the first place. This is what repentance is. It's turning from our way of life and turning to God and his way of life. And so in the promised land, Abram was there. And then he didn't trust God. And then he turned around. He repented. He went back to where God promised him. And also notice what it says he did. He called on the name of the Lord. He was like, God, I don't know what he called on him, but I figure he was like, God, I'm back. I want to live for you. I want to be faithful to you. I want to be your servant. God, I give my heart to you. That's what we're called to do. To turn away from loving sin to hating sin and loving God. To turn from filling our own selfish desires and instead living for God's desires. To having this life be about me. How can I be on top? How can I make it be more about me and saying, God, I want to put you on your throne. How can I make it more about you? How can I glorify you in everything? Abram messed up and he realized it. And so he went back to where he started. But you know what? God was with him the whole time. 
Because even when Abram was in Egypt, Pharaoh saw his wife, Sarah, and said, she is pretty. I'm going to take her to be with me. She's going to be my wife. And before Pharaoh could sleep with her, God appeared to Pharaoh in a dream and said, hold up. She is not that man's sister. She is that man's wife. Don't do it or else a plague is going to come upon you. And God was with Abram the whole time. Even when we're walking away from God, he's there with us. You can't outrun God. He's always there with you. The problem is, is that your back is turned away from him. So you have to repent and turn back towards him and start walking with his statutes. We hear this in Luke chapter 15. It's the infamous parable of the prodigal son. It starts in verse 11. This man, he has two sons. The younger one says, dad, I wish you were dead. Can you just give me your, my inheritance? Go ahead. You're as good as dead to me. Give me everything that is supposed to be mine. When you die, give it to me now. And so the father, he says, yeah, here you go. And so the son ends up going and he parties it off. He blows it all. And then he's sitting there feeding the pigs. He's a Jew. Pigs are like detestable to him. And he is feeding them and he's living with them. And he's like, man, I'm here eating the slop of pigs and my father's servants are eating better than me. And then we see in Luke chapter 15, verse 18 through 19, the son says, here's what I'm going to do. I will arise. And I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he's like, hey, I'm going to go back. I'm not even going to ask to be reinstated into my father's family. Instead, I'm just going to go back and say, Dad, can I be like the bottom in your household? Can I be like the servant of servants? And then in verse 20, it says, he arose And he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. His father is like, my son is gone, but I'm waiting for him to come back. And I'm not going to, when he comes back, be like, you idiot, you dummy, you're pathetic. You're dead to me, kid. Go, you, you wanted this lifestyle? Walk in it. Sorry, you can't come back. But instead we see while the kid was still a long ways off, the father's like, there's my son. And he runs, which is what Jewish men do not do at this time. But he's like, I don't care what it takes. I'm running to welcome my son back into my home. And so then the son in verse 21, notice this. It says, the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And notice the father, it's almost like the father appears to cut him off because at the first half, we saw him continue on saying, just let me be a servant in your house. But here he doesn't even get those words out. It's like he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father's like, hold up, bring, bring the best stuff. Bring my robe, bring my ring, get the fattened calf. Let's kill the fattened calf because we're partying tonight because my son's come home. Like I don't, no apology. Like you're here. You're my son. I love you. I want you to be with me. Welcome back to the family, son. That's what God says to us. When we take matters into our own hands and it's like, God, I guess I'll come back and there's guilt. And it's like, God, like, don't hit me too hard. Like, please don't strike me down, God. And instead, God is like, welcome home. Like, we're going to get the fattened calf. We're going to throw a party. We're told that in the parable of the 99 sheep that stayed home and the one sheep that strayed away, there is more rejoicing over that sheep that came back home than there is for the 99 that stayed. There is more rejoicing in heaven when God's lost people come back home to him. Can we celebrate that? When there are people who are like, I am living this life that is so against God. I pretty much told God, God, I wish you were dead and not even real. And then they say, God, I'm coming back to you. And God's people are like, huh, you got to prove it first. You got to live up to it first. Let's make sure you're telling me. There's not rejoicing, but there should be. 
because we're told there is more rejoicing. God rejoices more at that one person coming back home than there did the 99 righteous who were like, we never left. Because we see that in the parable of the prodigal son. Later on, the older brother is like, "Uh, why is he getting the party? Dad, I stayed here the whole time. I was faithful to you. And the dad's like, because my son was lost and now he's come home. Son, everything I have is yours. Let's rejoice in that. But my son is home. That is what I want to rejoice in. That is what we should rejoice in. That is how we should come back to God. So a lot of us have made mistakes this week. I mean, a lot of us have, probably every single one of us. Some of us had made bigger mistakes where it's like, oh man. I totally regret that decision. And it's like, I don't even know if I should be in this church today. I don't even know if I should be listening to this message because I really don't know if God actually does love me. He does. He loves you so much. When you repent and come back to him, he is rejoicing. He's cheering you on. He's like, come back to me. God's sitting there like, I'm waiting for them to return. Come home. Don't keep going that way. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to shoot you down. I'm going to welcome you with open arms. And so that's what we need to do. When we fall short, we repent. We don't let guilt come upon us. We don't beat ourselves down. But instead, we come back to God. We return to him. And this is where our passage ends in uh, chapter 13. The very end of chapter 13 in verse 14. Abram has returned and now God restores him. It says, oh, let me find my verse. It says, the Lord said to Abram, so Lot and Abram, they returned, Lot separated, and Abram is meeting with God, and God says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all that land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Notice what God did not do. Abram returned, and God didn't say, look at all this land. It could have been yours, but you're dumb, and so I'm not giving it to you. God didn't do that, but instead God said, look at all this land. I'm faithful to my promise. It is still yours. So when we fall short and we're like, God, you promised that you would save me from hell, but I did that sin. Am I still saved God's like, look at my cross. Look at the price that I paid for you. Yes, you're still saved. Yes, I still love you. Yes, you are still my son. Now I'm calling you to something higher. Live for me. Don't live in that life of death, but live for me. This is the track record of God. Taking broken people giving them a future, and when they go back to brokenness and come back to God, he still gives them a future. Jesus did it to the woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8, where this woman caught in the middle, middle, caught in the middle of adultery. She's standing there, she's messed up, and everybody's wanting to kill her. And they're trying to trap Jesus. Jesus, the law says we should kill her. You're talking about grace. What should we do? And Jesus, in the way that Jesus can, gets everybody to leave because he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And everybody's like, oh, wait a minute. That's not me. And so they all start walking away. And then God has her. Jesus is standing there looking at her. And he says, woman, where are they that condemn you? And she's like, they're nowhere, Lord, except for you. Are you going to condemn me too? No. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't beat her down. He didn't take up that stone and be like, well, really, I'm the only one able to do it. So look out. He said, I don't condemn you either. But 
Don't go back to that man. Don't go back to that drug. Don't go back to that lifestyle. Go and sin no more. The land of Israel. In the book of Chronicles, we see the whole cycle of bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Israel sinning, Israel worshiping other gods, Israel not worshiping the way God called them to worship. And then God tells them in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is a verse that we've seen a lot going around right now even. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and catch this, turn from their wicked ways, they repent, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. God made that promise to, Ab- or to, to Israel back then. You know, God makes that very promise to you today. That if you will repent and come to him, he will take you back. He has open arms ready to receive you. Revelation chapter two, it says, he's talking to the church and he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. We could say that against a lot of Christians. Like, hey, you guys are leaving God. You're not worshiping him. You're saying, God, yeah, I believe in you, but I'm gonna truly love all this other stuff. And so he says, you have left your first love, the love that you had at first. But notice what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And what's that next word? Repent and do the works you did at first. Turn from that lifestyle. Come back. There's still hope for you. God's not done with you. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Paul says that, Philippians 1.6. But you see, Satan tries to tell us opposite. Satan tries to say, God's done with you. That's the one that God's not gonna forgive. Or... Yeah, God's just really, really angry with you. You, you probably should take a three-month sabbatical from coming to God because he, he's just going to give you the silent treatment for a while. God is that unhappy with you. That's what Satan's going to try and get you to believe. He tries to heap guilt on us, saying that this is the sin that caused us to fall from God's grace. But again, look back at that passage in Psalm 105. Look at every time it says, God did something. He did this. God provided. God restored. God was there for his people. So when you stumble and it's gonna happen, the appropriate response is not to say, God, give me some space because I'm too scared of you. But instead, the appropriate response is to run to God, to run from what it is, even if you're in the middle of it, even if you are caught in the middle of adultery and you're like, crud, you say, I got to go. And you run to God. Even if you're in the middle of getting high, getting drunk, looking at pornography, cheating on somebody, whatever it is. The response is to stop, turn to God, and then run full speed towards him and say, God, I need you. And what you will find is not God being like running away, but instead God saying, come to me. And not even God just standing back like, you got like five more years till you get here. But instead God seeing you running towards him and God going, I'm coming towards you too. I am running after you as well. David knew what this was. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. David was caught in the middle of this. When he slept with Bathsheba, she had his, or is having his child. He has her husband being murdered and then it all comes to him. And he says to God, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Can I fill you in on a little secret? God did that for David. God wants to do that for you. But are you willing to repent? Because God's gonna let you run 
God, uh, the father and the prodigal son, let that son run away. And so, just like when we're driving, we can be like, God, give me the steering wheel. And God loves us. God does give us free will to make our own decisions. And so God will be like, okay, go for it. And when things happen, God's going to be like, I'm here. Come back to me. Let me love you. I wish we could see ourselves the way God sees us. I wish we could truly see how God sees us. And it's not because I'm a good person, but it's because I'm covered with the blood of Jesus. And I have not yet fully grasped what that means. I don't truly understand how God can see a broken sinner like me and yet love me the way that he does. That he would give his only begotten son for me, for you, knowing that I'm going to continue to sin. Knowing that this week somehow I'm going to screw it all up. And yet he's sending his son for us. Max Lucado, he wrote this book. And it's called, um, You Are Special, I think. And so this book is about these created creatures called Wemmicks. And they're made out of wood, and they live in this little Wemmick community, and they're all given uh, uh, stickers that they can go around. And so for the Wemmicks that have it all together, that are polished, that are sanded, that are painted really nice, they all get to put uh, gold stars on each other. And boy, that's like the token. It's like, man, you got a gold star. You are good. You got a gold star. Good for you. But then for the ones that are like chipped and torn, the ones that are defiled and broken, they get dots. And so everybody with stars is walking around and they see this one Wemmick and man, he's beaten, he's torn, he's broken and everybody walks by another dot, another one walks by another dot just heaping these dots on him and it is burdening him. He's like, my goodness, I'm not loved. And so finally he sees this one little girl Wemmick and she has no dots and no stars on her. And he's like, what's going on here? How's come? Because like people are putting stars and they're just falling off. People are putting dots and they're just dropping to the ground. And it's like, how's come none of that is happening? And she says, because I met Eli. He's the guy that made all of us. And he's told me something that won't let those dots stick on me. And so he's like, man, I would love to have that. So then she takes him to meet Eli and he's talking to Eli. And Eli is like telling this little Wemmick, do you realize who you are? Do you realize how much I love you? that I created you, that I care for you, that you are special to me. And he's like, why do all the dots stick to me? And Eli said, because you let them. And then Eli is like, when you realize how much I love you, how much I care for you, those dots won't stick. And so then Eli sands him up and makes him the way that Eli has made him to be. And he goes back out and everybody sees him and they try sticking dots and stars on him and they just fall right off. That's the way it should be when we realize who God is and who we are to God. Not because of who we are, but because of God's love for us. He displayed it at the cross. And so when we see who we are to Jesus, that he gave his son for us, that we are washed clean, Satan's going to try and throw at us, you're an adulterer and it'll fall off. He's going to try and say you're a drunkard, you're a drug addict, you're a liar, you're abusive, you're a cheat, you're unfaithful, whatever it is. He's going to try, and it's like, that might be who I was in the passage that Todd read to us. Paul said, as such were some of you. You were sexually immoral. You were fornicators. You were adulterers. You were drunkards. You were blasphemers. As such were some of you. Because then he says, but you were washed. You were made clean. You were made new because of the blood of Jesus. So for Christians in this room today, walk in that assurance. Whatever guilt you came in here with, that is not from God. Repent from it. Turn and go to God and confess it. Say, God, I know I sinned. God, I know that was not in accordance to your word. I repent of it and I want to live for you and I give my life over to you.
And then maybe you're here and you have not given your life to God. He's saying, repent of that lifestyle. Turn from living for yourself and turn towards living for God. And then let God do the work in you. Allow him to transform you. Allow him to give you spiritual bread. Allow him to strengthen you. Don't rely on your own ability because when I rely on my own ability, it takes me back this way. When I rely on God, it takes me more and more towards God. So walk in that because God is standing there today and he is saying, if you want to live for me, don't say, but God, if you knew who I really was, he knows who you really are. He knows the deepest, darkest thing that you are trying to never let anybody know. He knows those thoughts that you're like, if I ever was found out about these, nobody would like me. God knows those thoughts. And he says, I don't just like you. I love you. I love you so much. Romans 5 8 says that while we were still sinners, while we were still thinking those thoughts, thoughts, Christ died for us. And he's saying, come to me. Come home. I'm looking. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to come running down to me and I will welcome you with open arms and I will reinstate you back into my family. You are my child. Don't let sin hold you back from God. But instead, let it push you to God. Let it draw you closer to him. Father God, we thank you just for, for loving us. God, for making a way that we can be with you. And God, I, I thank you for those who have already received salvation in you. And I just pray um, that if there's guilt in this room, God, let us give it over to you. Let us feel conviction when we sin, but let us have that conviction drive us to you. God, I pray for those who maybe aren't living for you, who are the prodigal sons right now that are still blowing their fortune, that are out there living for themselves. And God, you are calling them home. I pray that if there be anybody in here this morning who has a decision to make, that they are feeling the tug from you, but they're thinking, man, if people really knew, then they would question why I'm coming forward. God, call them to you. Let them give their life over to you and let them see that there is joy and blessing found in living for you and being in right relationship with you. So God, you are working on the hearts of your people. I just pray, continue your good work as you have promised. And it's in your name we pray.